The US is now the epicenter of the global pandemic. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak. And decisions being taken this month in the White House will have an effect on millions of lives. The early phase was all about spin, and now we're in a totally different phase. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Trump and the virus, the defining moment of a presidency. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I remember on my flight out to the US, uh, I flew from London to Washington on January the 27th. My flight was relatively empty, actually. Henry Zeffman is the Times' new Washington correspondent. But on my row were two or three people who were wearing masks. I remember, you know, that was kind of the level that the story was at at the time, which was that I was vaguely aware of this virus that started in Wuhan. And I've been to Wuhan, so I sort of took a little bit of an interest in it, but but not much more than that. It really wasn't a feature of the Democratic presidential contest. And then it suddenly escalated. I mean, basically at the same time that it suddenly escalated in the UK, people started dying in Washington state, actually, on the West Coast, before New York, which we now see as the epicentre in the US. But on, in Washington state, there was a care home where a lot of the residents suddenly succumbed to the virus. And that was when people started taking it seriously here. And then it was really just a matter of days from that becoming front page news out here to Donald Trump banning travel from people who'd been in Europe and the UK. Now, do you recall Donald Trump's first response to the corona outbreak? The coronavirus, that's uh, a new thing that a lot of people are talking about. Hopefully it won't be uh, as bad as some people think it could be. As the story sort of was in its steady phase of uh, increasing in significance, rather than, I suppose, to use the fashionable uh, term, exponential phase of increasing in significance, Trump used to get asked about it now and then. He'd basically dismiss it. Working very closely with them and with a lot of other people in a lot of other countries, and we think we have it very well under control, and we think it's going to have a very good ending for us, so uh, that I can... Uh, assure you. The most famous incidence of this is when he was asked about you know, Democrats criticizing him over not doing enough to respond to it. Now the Democrats are politicizing the 
And he said, well, they just impeached me and this is their latest hoax, because hoax was the word he liked to use about impeachment. He used to say... A lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat, as the heat comes in. Uh, typically, that will go away in April. One day, it will just disappear. He compared it to the flu, which, of course, was quite a fashionable comparison in lots of places, but nevertheless, uh, not a comparison that some of his advisors would have wanted him to make. And actually, the really interesting thing was that Trump basically treated it like any other political enemy, in fact, probably business enemy that he's ever had in his life, which was that he could belittle it out of existence. So he just sort of insisted that it wasn't a real thing, wasn't an important thing, wasn't a threat. And I think assumed that because this has worked for so many other things in his life, and particularly in his short political career, that that would extinguish the virus. You mean he wanted to kind of, you know, like he used to call Marco Rubio, little Marco, he wanted to describe this really as silly flu. Basically that. So yeah, the early phase was all about spin. And now we're in a totally different phase where, of course, the spin is still there. But the much more intriguing question is about the sort of tensions between Donald Trump, who wants to reopen the country economically as soon as possible, and his immunologists and political advisers who feel very differently. Now, can you describe how the tone changed in public discourse and how he responded to it? It's somewhat chicken and egg in that, yes, people wanted Donald Trump to take this more seriously before he did. But equally, I think Donald Trump suddenly taking it more seriously was a wake-up call for lots of Americans, not just people who support him politically, but mostly people who do. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout... The Oval Office address in which he, without very much warning at all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. Banned foreign travel or banned foreigners who'd been in mainland Europe and then eventually the UK and Ireland as well from coming to the US. That was a sort of very sudden and pretty startling shift. I mean, it was was very Trumpian in that he'd been being urged by his opponents uh, and others to take this more seriously for a matter of weeks, if not months at that point. And then he went straight to a measure which while mostly having support, I think, was not actually in the sort of suite of options that people were urging him to take. But that Oval Office address, which was only the second of his presidency, only the second of his sort of my fellow Americans moments, that really was a sort of sudden shift in how people perceive this in America. And Trump, you could see it on his face. I mean, he was visibly nervous. He made a few mistakes while reading off the teleprompter. You could see that this was sort of weighing on him a bit shouldn't go too far to the extent to which anything weighs on him, but it was weighing on him more seriously than many other sort of public policy crises which have faced him. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, it clearly is the biggest policy crisis he's confronted and, and presumably will confront as president, whether he serves four years or eight years. He wasn't keen on a shutdown, was he? No, he wasn't. And it is worth remembering, though, that part of it is that Donald Trump sees the economy as the most important thing. And he had been preparing to use as his main argument for re-election in November that the stock market was going gangbusters, which is partly true. The economy is in more robust health, at least in headline figures, than some of his opponents thought it would be at this point. But that was the main argument Trump had. And he thought that shutting down the economy, as in other countries, would mean a sudden tanking in the stock market, would mean an almost inevitable recession, lasting however long, surely it would last 
into election day in November. And Donald Trump was very, very anxious about the political consequences of the economic consequences of a shutdown. I want to come to the question of the governors in a moment. But in the first instance, can you trace how President Trump changed his mind about how severe this was and what had to be done about it? Nothing Donald Trump ever does is a is a straight line. So he started taking it more seriously. He effectively led the shutdown of the US economy. And then there was a brief period where he started saying it was all going to be okay again. I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country. And we're all working very hard to make that a reality. He declared that he was going to reopen America by Easter. The symbolism of a resurrection, very much part of that deadline. But then just a few days after he declared that the US would be reopened, he suddenly extended the social distancing guidelines to the end of April. So nothing Donald Trump does is ever sort of a clear, smooth trajectory. But one thing that that in very recent days is particularly clear is that the fact that New York is the epicenter in the US has affected Trump pretty greatly. So I grew up in Queens, New York, and right next to a place called Elmhurst. You've got to remember, Donald Trump is a lifelong New Yorker. He grew up in Queens in New York. He lived his entire life in New York until he moved to Washington when he became president. A hospital that's a very good hospital, Elmhurst Hospital. Right Trump has been moved by images he's seen from New York. He, he spoke a couple of days in a row at his daily press briefing about images he'd seen from a hospital called Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. I've been watching that for the last week on television. Body bags all over in hallways. I've been watching them bring in trailer trucks, freezer trucks. They're freezer trucks because they can't handle the bodies. There's so many of them. This is in my, essentially in my community. And he he was saying, you know, I know this hospital well. I've been there lots of times. I've seen things that I've never seen before. I mean, I've seen them, but I've seen them on television in faraway lands. I've never seen them in our country. Elmhurst Hospital, unbelievable. Clearly that moved him. And then the second component that persuaded him in recent days to take it particularly seriously is a friend of his who he's never named, who he says has contracted the virus and is now in a coma. And the thing that Trump was very shaken by, again, he spoke about this friend I think, three days in a row. The thing that he was very shaken by was that he'd called him up and asked him how he was, and the friend had said, well, I'm on the mend, it's fine. And then the next day, he called the hospital and the friend was in a coma. As we know, the, the virus can move you know, very suddenly even when people think they're recovering. And that sort of personal experience of the seriousness of the virus does seem to have, at least for now produced a a greater seriousness in how Donald Trump is responding to this. In this country, obviously, you've been away. The way in which it's gone, by and large, is that the politicians have taken their cue from their scientific and medical advisors, who they've been flanked with all the time. What you're describing is a situation whereby the president seems to have his completely own internal timeline and think line, which has nearly nothing to do with what his scientific advisors are telling him. It, it doesn't have nothing to do with what his scientific advisors are telling him, but his scientific advisors are just part of the picture. So there's a couple of scientific advisors who've become very prominent in America because Trump brings them out at his press conferences too. A bit like the UK press conferences, the press conferences here have a rotating cast, though always they include Donald Trump. 
uh, and they have far more people than in the UK, and they're not at all socially distanced. They're all bunched up on the podium. And those two doctors, one of them's a guy called Anthony Fauci, another New Yorker, it's worth noting. He's from Brooklyn. He's 79. He's been the US's chief immunologist for years and years and years. And then the other one is a woman called Deborah Burks, who's also been in the government for a very, very long time and led the uh, US response to HIV AIDS. And they are a big part of the picture. And Trump, for all his distrust of experts generally, repeatedly praises them, clearly is in awe, I think, of their scientific expertise. But they are not the only people who have his ear. There is also Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who has absolutely no immunological expertise, but he is part of the coronavirus task force, part of the response. Mike Pence, the vice president, who actually, by the way, is getting plaudits right across the political aisle for how he's handled this, is sort of trying to manage the various moving parts of the government and of Trump's mind. So yes, Trump is taking science seriously, but there are many other things competing for his ear. And absolutely, it is is an almost unknowable question, the question of what happens between those inputs into Trump's headspace and what he then decides and comes out of his mouth at the end of the day. As of right now, how bad is the situation in the States with coronavirus? Well, as we're speaking, according to John Hopkins University, there's about 340,000 cases in the US and there's been just under 10,000 deaths. The plurality of those have been in New York, uh, which is currently the epicentre of the US outbreak. But the big question that is occupying US policymakers and, and the US public more generally, is it the case that New York City, like Italy and Europe, just happened to be first, and that what is happening in New York now is going to spread through the states. Currently, the images from New York are really quite terrifying. Hospitals with very little equipment, people dying without any loved ones present, morgues that are full, where everyone has died from coronavirus. Obviously, if that's going to be repeated across the US, that is going to have severe psychological impacts for what US politics looks like in the months and years and maybe even decades to come. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, Henry, talk me through the changing importance of the governor in American politics. Governors used to be a big part of the national conversation, but perhaps most importantly, a very natural springboard to the presidency. 
So from 1977, when Jimmy Carter, who was a former governor of Georgia, he became president in 1977. And then through to 2009, when Bush Jr. was replaced by Barack Obama, every single one of those presidents, except George Bush Sr., who was only president for four years, had run a state. But since then, uh, governors haven't done brilliantly. Romney, who was a former governor of Massachusetts, ran against Obama in 2012 on a platform of, you know, here are the good things I did as governor, I'm a business executive, and it just didn't work. Donald Trump, in the 2016 primaries, saw off governors or former governors of, deep breath here, Ohio, Florida, Arkansas, New Jersey, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Louisiana, Wisconsin, and Texas. And there is something quite telling about that, about how then a governorship was just seen as not an important enough qualification. But now the national conversation has been attuned to how different states are handling things. And so some of the decisions have gone back to these strange figures, which we have no kind of analogy to, which is the governors of the states. In this outbreak, governors have have become really central because how they respond in each state is a big determinant of the shape of the outbreak, the shape of the curve there. So the greatest example of this is Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. Uh, He's the second longest serving governor in the US. He's been governor for about 10 years. And he is not a particularly well-loved figure in New York, despite being re-elected three times. But he has become the archetype of how Democrats believe Donald Trump should be handling this crisis. Good morning. Like Donald Trump, he gives daily press conferences. Start of another work week. Unlike Donald Trump, they are hyper-focused. The number continues to increase. We're up to uh, 8,658 They begin with a PowerPoint where he goes through statistics from the day. 16,000 people in our hospital system. In dispenses, uh, very New York advice, it's blunt. Number of deaths uh, are up once again, number of people we lost, number of New Yorkers. He uses his university-aged daughters to come and make points often where they, you know, he says, look, my daughter's here, they've cancelled their spring break plans, so should you. Luckily, she made the right decision, and I'm proud of her for that. Things might have been very different. You know, Andrew Cuomo clearly now, all of a sudden, has the national profile that people might have looked at him as a presidential contender, but the primaries are all wrapped up. The reality, on this occasion at least, is that Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, and the timing just didn't quite work out for some of these governors to try and use their handling of coronavirus as a springboard to national office. Henry, what do we think is going to happen now? I mean, we've heard the very bad outbreaks in New York and lesser outbreaks, but some bad ones elsewhere in the country. Where do they think the virus is going next? Deborah Burks, one of those two top doctors in the White House, keeps saying that she's worried about Detroit, Michigan's largest city, as potentially the next New York. They've started, uh, concerningly mentioning Washington, D.C., Uh, as a potential area where the curve is not looking great. That said, I do, from my experience here, think people are being pretty good about social distancing and have been for some time. So hopefully that will have some effect. Then there's the curious case of California and Washington State. The curve has really flattened there and and, and there hasn't been the same sort of uh, exponential surge there. California looks, there are early signs that it might be going in a similar direction to Washington State. So If that is the case, and there isn't a sudden flare-up again in those two West Coast states, 
that is a sign of optimism, not just in and of themselves, but policymakers in the federal government and in the other 48 states will be looking to those two states and saying, okay, what did they do that we can follow that hopefully means that the most dire predictions of the death toll in the US do not turn out to become reality. And what about in those states which have been much more reluctant and slow to take uh, action? I imagine more rural or small town states. What, what do we expect to see there? You would expect the lack of social distancing or the lateness of social distancing to mean a higher death toll. And in many of those states, people are poorer. They have worse health to begin with. The state of healthcare is much worse. And as you say, they tend to be non-urban or rural. And that means the hospitals are farther away and they might be poorly equipped. On the other hand, the fact that they are more rural, the fact that people are intrinsically more distant might mean that there will have been a, a slower spread or fewer opportunities for spread in the first place. But you know, certainly lots of people here fear that once the slowness of some of those states to catch on to the seriousness of the virus works its way through the system, you might end up with a really very serious death toll in some states which at the moment are ostensibly not particularly badly affected. Let's join this together in the kind of a bigger picture and a bit more of a political picture. You could argue that a moment like this comes very, very rarely and provides the biggest test of somebody's fitness for office and what kind of high office holder they are. What do you think Americans feel about how their president has risen to the occasion? The incredibly striking thing, which runs like a stick of rock through every poll that's been conducted on this, is that people break down in their partisan allegiances, even on coronavirus. So in a poll that was taken a couple of weeks ago in mid-March, 56% of Americans thought coronavirus was a real threat. You burrow down into that, 76% of Democrats thought coronavirus was a real threat, but only 40% of Republicans thought coronavirus was a real threat. So if you ask how Americans perceive Donald Trump to be responding to this, the answer is generally, if they're a Democrat and they already didn't like him, they think he's doing badly. If they're a Republican and they already liked him, they think he's doing well. But actually, that picture slightly masks a bit of a bad picture for President Trump, which is that we've seen across the world, including in the UK, pretty much every leader has got a bounce in their opinion ratings, basically a crisis bounce. Donald Trump's is very much towards the small end of that global picture, and it seems to be worsening. And that trend would suggest that as more and more people die, which they will for some period longer, that Donald Trump's ratings are just going to get worse and worse. But as it stands, he still seems to be popular with Republicans, broadly popular with the people who made him president in 2016. This is an even more intractable question. You say that Americans are, many Americans are very divided on partisan basis, but there will be histories written of this of this pandemic and how it was handled. As a kind of early guess, what do you think they're going to say about how he dealt with it? Even in my short time here, I've learned that it is very hard to project how any one American will respond to different political events. But 
I do think increasingly that the November election is simply going to be a referendum on Donald Trump's handling of coronavirus. You know, strip Joe Biden out of the picture. Clearly, in a world where lots of people will know someone, or at the very least know someone who knows someone who has died from coronavirus, who had it very seriously or was intubated, or who lost their business, say, I, I, I find it hard to believe he's not going to lose support. But Donald Trump is an incredibly resilient politician. The truth is, it's, it's too early to say, but he's not handled it brilliantly so far. And so if this is going to be a coronavirus election, that's not good for him. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, The Times' Washington correspondent, Henry Zeffman. You can read more of Henry's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and James Shield, the executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder, and if you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free... We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can access expert analysis on the latest developments in the COVID-19 crisis with The Times' dedicated daily coronavirus newsletter. Sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk slash coronavirus. See you next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.